You can turn over in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 24. That's where we're at. Matthew chapter 24. And uh, we're probably going to be in this text for a little bit because there's so much in here. Uh, We're calling this little mini-series as we reach this portion of Matthew, Discerning the Times. And this is the third message so far as we uh, look at this passage. And today we're going to be looking at the beginning of birth pains. The Bible says that in the end we'll know His coming because there'll be uh, the beginning of certain indicators. And we looked at some of those uh, last week. But we find ourselves in Matthew 24 at this portion of the Gospel of Matthew. And uh, it's Matthew 24 25 is known as the Olivet Discourse. And uh, it's because it took place on the Mount of Olives. Jesus is teaching his disciples, just the 12 of them and him. So there's 13 of them all together. They've left Jerusalem after uh, he basically uh, pronounced judgment upon the Pharisees and the religious leaders of the time. They walked over through the Kidron Valley up to the Mount of Olives and along the way the disciples began to ponder some of the things that Jesus had said upon leaving the temple area and we saw that in the beginning of chapter 24 and they came up to him and they began to point out these buildings and uh, he told them that you see these buildings around you he says in verse uh, 2 there He says, there will not be left one stone upon another. And that basically took place in 70 A.D. Because the Romans went into Jerusalem, history tells us this, and just devastated it. And these are massive stones they're talking about. Huge, tons. And yet, Josephus, a church historian, tells us when the Romans were through with their... uh, invasion and judgment and and just uh, devastation of Israel because they were sick and tired of the Jews causing them problems. Josephus said that you could take a, a farmer could take his plow and plow from one end of Jerusalem to the other, tilling up dirt. That's how much everything was just flattened, right down to the dirt. And so that prophecy that Jesus foretold took place. Now, we come to this part of Matthew, and it's a sermon from Jesus about his own second coming, and the end of the age as we know it, and the establishment of his kingdom. Now, I want to, first of all, um, just give you a quick survey of, and there's a little chart there in in your outline that will help you through this. But right now we're in what we call the church age. It began with the beginning of the church, Pentecost, prior to when or after Christ came. He came to this earth, the incarnation, the little cross there. And he lived and died for 33-some years. And uh, he was buried. He was resurrected on the third day. Then he ascended back to heaven, the Bible tells us. And then the disciples... Uh, taking the directions from Jesus, began to preach and teach, and people were converted, and the church was begun. 
It began, and that's the church age that we're talking about. We don't know how long the church age is. We have the slightest idea. Nobody knows. But we do know that at the end of the church age, Scripture tells us that there will come what is called is a catching away or a rapture of his people. It's ta- talked about in First um, Thessalonians. It's talked about in other places. But what happens is you see the arrow there with Christ coming down. Christ comes back from heaven, but he doesn't come to earth. He comes in the clouds, the Bible says, and the church, those who follow Christ, those who are believers in Jesus Christ, are caught up to be with him in the air. Now, that may sound kind of fanciful to you, but as we said before, when the Bible says something, it means it. And after the rapture of all these believers from the earth, you can imagine these followers of Christ are taken away. The Bible says there begins a time of seven years called the tribulation time. And this also referred to as the time of Jacob's trouble or Israel's trouble. It's the time of God's judgment upon the earth. Remember, the church is not here. If you come to church someday and nobody's here, you'll know what happened. I heard a story of a, uh, a friend of mine. They, in college, they had a guy that was teaching eschatology and he was always going on and on and one time that the class thought it'd be funny and they came in and they put all their clothes sneakers and everything in the chairs before the professor got there and the professor walked in and kind of was shocked at what he saw because that's literally what's going to happen and when he comes back we will be caught up with him in the air leaving everything behind and what a glorious day that will be we're to look forward to that um now, there's different views on this, okay? And we're not going to get caught up in uh, dividing the body of Christ over things that have yet to happen. Um, and yet, we're going to be very pointed at what we believe and what we teach. But I also believe that when we look back on history, there are certain things that take place And we say, wow, that happened, and the Bible prophesied that, and that happened. Well, we can teach very dogmatically on that. But the body of Christ, to be honest with you, is all over when it comes, all over the place when it comes to the end times. All right? And we have a certain view, and uh, and we're going to share that view as we teach through the Bible, because that's what we believe the Bible teaches. But I don't think everybody has 100% of it 100% right. there could always be something that we don't catch. And so you've got to be careful. You can't dial in, you know, okay, well, he's coming back on this day and this day. You don't do that. Okay, but we do know that this tribulation period, this, this time of Jacob's trouble, it's called, is a seven-year period after the rapture of the church. Now, remember, the Holy Spirit is gone from the, 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 the presence of the church. The, the, the uh, influence is gone, I should say. All the believers are taken away. So there's this period of judgment that God carries out for seven years, and it's split into two periods of three and a half years each. And you ask, well, what divides it? Okay, what divides the tribulation in half, into three and a half years? Well, during that time of seven years, there's going to be an individual called the Antichrist, 
and he will rise up during all this chaos that's going on because all these judgments begin, and we're going to begin to see that as we go through Matthew 24 and 25. I mean, cataclysmic things are going to start happening. Chaos will reign here on earth. You can imagine, I mean, just crime and everything will just escalate because the presence of the church is gone at that point. So this Antichrist will be will be raised up, basically, and he will win people to himself. He's a great deceiver, and during all these chaotic times of the first three and a half years here, he's going to promise peace, and he's going to probably be some kind of a political head or something that comes up, and there's been times, you know, you look back over certain politicians, and people said, oh, this guy's the Antichrist, that's the Antichrist. I don't think it's going to be that obvious. He's going to be a deceiver. You're not going to be able to point to him and say, oh, that's the Antichrist. We know that. Uh, He will deceive the world into following him. And even Israel, during that time, will be deceived and they will sign a treaty with him because they'll want to build a temple and, and do their worship in their temple. And he'll say, sure, go ahead. They'll sign the treaty and he will allow Israel to build their temple and to worship there. And that goes fine for three and a half years. Well, after three and a half years, basically what the Bible says happens is this Antichrist goes into the temple and he basically desecrates it and he calls himself God. He proclaims himself the Messiah, God. Proclaims himself to be God. And that will start, what the Bible says, is the Great Tribulation, which is the last three and a half years of the seven-year period. And that's when the judgment really gets cranked up. It's going to be very, very difficult on the people who are alive during that time here on earth. And that time will end, the Bible says, that seven-year period will end with Jesus' second coming with his church to defeat the Antichrist and to rule and to reign, and it says their millennium, a thousand years on the earth, and then there's a great judgment, and then after that, we go into eternity, basically. New heavens, the new earth, that whole thing. That's, that's just a really brief survey of what is to come. Now, last week, we looked a little bit at um, Jewish eschatology, the, the, the way they look at the end times. And now, remember, they didn't see the church age. The church age just caught them totally off guard. They thought their Messiah is going to come, and he's going to come, and when he comes, he's going to start his rule, he's going to start his reign right here on earth. That's why the disciples are always saying, hey, is it now? When's this going to happen? When's this going to happen? When are we going to take over and, and defeat the Romans and you know, uh, get our people out from under these, these bondage? And so they were very eager for that to happen because they didn't know that he was going to die. They didn't understand that he was going to be resurrected. They didn't know that he was going to go back to heaven. And then whenever he's going to come back again. They didn't understand that. They thought it was all going to happen right then. And so the disciples in Matthew 24 are asking Jesus, well, when are these things going to happen? Because they're thinking, is it going to happen tomorrow? Is it happening next week? When is it going to happen? They only thought of one 
coming of the Messiah, you might say. They didn't fill in that big gap in between. That's why the New Testament calls the church age, the time in which we live now, a mystery. Because they, they, the, even the Old Testament prophets didn't even see it. So they want to know the signs of the coming of the Christ. Signs of the end of the age. And so he takes them and he sweeps them into, you might say, eternity. But he gives certain indicators throughout Matthew 24 there. And we looked at these uh, last week. We looked at the birth pains. We looked at the believers will endure to the end, it says in verse 13. The proclamation of the gospel all over the world. The abomination of desolation. The great tribulation. And then all these supernatural signs that are going to happen before the Messiah's return. None of that has happened yet. The only thing that's happened in our time today is verses 1 and 2 when he says all these stones are going to be tossed down and Jerusalem's going to be judged. So in verse 3, when the disciples ask him that question, he answers, but he's answering in the future. Now whether they got that or not, I don't think they did. But let's read what we're going to be looking at Today, because we're going to be looking at, if you follow along in the coming weeks as we work our way through this, you'll have a pretty good understanding of what's going to take place. But let's just look at verses 4 and 5 this morning. Matthew 24, verses 4 and 5. They ask the question in, in verse 3, and then he answers. It says, And Jesus said to them, answered them, See that no one leads you astray. For many will come in my name, saying, I am the Christ. Probably use the word the Messiah. Christ is a Gentile term, but Messiah is Jewish. He probably said Messiah. And they will lead many astray. Now, this is one of the first things that we're going to see happen. This is one of the first things that precedes the the second coming of Christ, is many people will be deceived. But I have to have you understand something here. In verses 4 and 5, and this whole thing, it keeps on going down right through verse 14. You can sit there, you can read through there, and you, you can see you and you and you and you and you. Well, who is you? Who is he talking to? Who is Jesus referring to? And you say, well, I mean, he's talking to the disciples. There's 13 of them there. That's the only people that are there. I'm sure he's just referring to them. But remember, the events in 24 and 25 haven't happened yet in world history. They're in the future. And the the reason we believe that is because we take the Bible literally. Some people don't take the Bible literally, and they make this mean all kinds of different things. We're going to take it literally just for what it says at its face value. So if he's talking to them and he's saying all these things are going to happen, and yet none of them has happened even in our lifetime yet, who is he really speaking with? The disciples didn't live past the first century. Well, we're in the 21st century now. So who is the you In Matthew 24. Well, let's find out. Look down at verse 16. 
all the way down to verse 16. It says there, Then let those who are in where? Judea, right? Flee the mountains. Flee to the mountains. Let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Well, who lives in Judea? Jews. It doesn't say that you're to those who are in Argentina flee to the mountains. It doesn't say those who are in Canada or even those who are in Redwood City flee to the mountains. I believe literally there's going to come a time in the land of Judah, which is the southern part of Israel, which contains Jerusalem. where judgment will fall. So it says, those of you who are living in Judah in this future time, flee to the mountains. Doesn't say flee to the Sierras. (laughs) Flee to the mountains. And you say, well, are there just Jews living there? That's all that live there? I mean, today there's different people from different people groups and and it's the same it'd be the same then even as it is today but who is he talking to if you stop and think about it there are other people living in that region there are probably a little over a million arabs who live in that region and they stayed in israel after israel came back to the land in 1948 and they lived side by side alongside of the israelis Arabs. Some of them are Christians, some of them are Muslims. And they live peaceably. You don't see that in the news, but we saw it when we were over there. Is it those people he's talking about? Who's he talking about? Well, let me ask you this question. What day of the week do Christians worship on? Sunday, right? And the reason we worship on Sunday is because it's the day of Christ's resurrection. It's the first day of the week. The church met on the first day of the week. That's our, might call it, holy day, Sunday. What is the Muslims' holy day? Anybody know? Friday. Friday. And the reason it's Friday is because Muhammad, you can go back and you can research this, but Muhammad said, well, basically, we got a late start here, but we're still going to beat you. <laughs> so we're going to worship before anybody, because the Jews have their uh, worship day on which day? Saturday. So Muhammad said, well, we're going to beat you all, and we're going to start on Friday. That was literally the thinking. So you have the Christians on Sunday, the Muslims on Friday, the Jews on Saturday, which is the seventh day of the Shabbat. Look at verse 20. It's amazing how this kind of comes together. He says in verse 20, Pray that your flight may not be in winter or on the Sabbath. Pray that your flight may not be in winter or on the Sabbath. Now, I know I'm kind of jumping around here a little bit, but in verse 15, there's an incident that takes place that I referred to earlier that divides the tribulation, the abomination of desolation, when the Antichrist proclaims himself to be God. At that point, when the Antichrist proclaims himself to be God, 
Basically, Jesus is saying, you better move quickly to the mountains. Because if you don't, you're going to be slaughtered. Because that's exactly what he's going to do. He's going to declare war. The Antichrist will declare war on all the Jews. And he says, you better pray that it doesn't happen in the winter. Why? Have you ever been to Jerusalem in the wintertime? They can literally have snow over there. It's a little hard to get around. It's a very high elevation. Okay? So he says, you better pray it doesn't happen then because it's going to be hard for you to flee this guy's wrath, the Antichrist's wrath. And you also better pray that it doesn't happen on the Sabbath. Because Jews don't do a lot of traveling on the Sabbath. So it's going to be difficult for you to flee. But when this judgment falls, he says, don't go home, don't do anything. You better just run. And that's what he talks about there in that section. And we'll get to that when we get to it. So what is the... We know that these people that he's talking about are Jews who are in the land of Judea in the future at some point in time. What is their spiritual condition? Who do they worship? By whose name will they be identified? These Jews in Judea at this point in time in the future. Well, look at verse 9 because it tells us, amazingly, it says, Then they will deliver you up, who's you, the Jews in Judea at that time, to tribulation and put you to death. That's why they're told to flee. And you will be hated by all nations... Because what? For my name's sake. For my name's sake. See, early in the tribulation, there's going to be this spiritual revival among the Jews. And the people who hated Jesus the most are the ones who are going to love him the most during that period of time. Those who crucified him are going to be those who worship him. And you may be sitting there going, that's impossible. I've tried to witness the Jews before. I mean, you even mentioned Jesus. Man, they run. They criticize. The Bible, that's what it says. They will be hated for whose namesake? My names. It's Jesus that's talking here. He says, my namesake, they will be hated. And it says the hatred will be so much upon these Jews who believe in the Messiah, who believe in Jesus Christ, who have fallen in love with Jesus Christ, the hatred will be so much, it says, by all nations. All nations. When the Bible says all, it means all. Including the good old U.S. of A. And you say, are you saying that there's going to be a time? Because... In in the future, when the United States turns its back on Israel, I mean, they're the closest ally in the Middle East. I mean, I could never imagine that happening. That's exactly what I'm saying. And you can see, if you read the paper, or if you go on your computer, and you look at the news, and you put it right alongside your Bible, and you begin to compare notes, it's amazing what is lining up as far as prophecy is concerned. Why are these people 
These Jews in the future in the land of Judea hated so much by all these nations because of the sons of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob? No. Oh, maybe because they want the land. Maybe because they're staying there because they have the right to the land. No, it doesn't say that either. It says, for my name's sake, because they deeply love Jesus Christ at that point in time in the future. Jesus, their Messiah. It's hard to believe. But, I mean, who would have thought the Berlin Wall would have fell down? Who would have thought just recently? I mean, you go back a couple of years and you start looking at the dictators that have ruled for years in some of these countries. And they're falling, one after the other. Saddam Hussein, I mean, you can go on, you can make the list. The world is changing, beloved. The whole makeup of governments and nations is changing. And God is moving and he's working because our God is a sovereign God. No one knows when Jesus Christ is coming back. The reason I know that is because it says, if you jump down to verse 44, it says, Therefore, you also must be ready, for the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. We don't know when this second coming is going to happen. But we do. Jesus gives us signs. He gives us indicators. He says, when you start seeing these things happen, you better kind of listen up. Now, having put us into the future, having understood where we're at in this time, in the future, when we're talking here in Matthew 24, we're in the, the tribulation time. This is when all this is taking place. And these are the signs of his second coming. So that's what the disciples were asking. Well, what are these signs? What are these signs? What what is this? And it it tells us right there in verse 8, all these are but the beginning of birth pains. When you begin to see all these things that we're going to look at in the next couple of weeks in 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 verses 6 and 7, such and such, All those are just the beginning. And so we're at the beginning of this period of time. So that's where I want you to think about. He's talking to Jews in the land of Judea who have supernaturally been converted to the the Messiah. They love Jesus. And he's giving them indicators of what will take place. The first thing on the list is widespread deception widespread deception now i'm not saying that there's not deception today because there is right i mean you can look all over the place and see people being deceived we're not saying that there wasn't deception back then in the time of christ there was there's always been those out there deceiving and 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 trying to cause deception among god's people There's always been people who come in the name of Christ, in the name of God, to lead people astray. That's just the way it is. There have always been false Christs. And there always will be. But what Jesus is saying here is, you've never seen anything like this. Ever. couple verses that speak of that. 1 Timothy chapter 
4, verses 1 and 2, it says, Now the Spirit expressly says, In the latter times some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and teaching of demons through the insincerity of liars whose consciences are seared, who forbid marriage and require abstinence from foods that God has created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. 2 Timothy 3.13 says, Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted, while evil people and imposters, that's what it says, will go on from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. Second Peter chapter 2, verses 1 to 3, But false prophets also arose among the people, just as there will be false teachers among you, who will secretly bring in destructive heresies, even denying the master who bought them, bringing upon themselves swift destruction, and many will follow their sensuality. And because of them, the way of truth will be blasphemed. And in their greed, they will exploit you with false words. Their condemnation from long ago is not idle, and their destruction is not asleep. In 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 18 to 22, it says, For speaking loud boasts of folly, they entice by sensual passions of the flesh. I mean, if you know anything about our society today, beloved, all you've got to do is turn on the TV. Sensuality reigns. It's all over the place. You can't even drive down the freeway without dealing with it. Billboards. It says, by, by sensual passions of the flesh, those who are barely escaping from those who live in error. 2 Peter 2.19 They promise them freedom, but they themselves are slaves of corruption. For whatever overcomes a person, to that he is enslaved. For if after they have escaped the defilements of the world through the knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, they are again entangled in them and overcome, the last state has become worse for them than the first. For it would have been far better for them to have never known the way of righteousness than after knowing it to turn back from the holy commandment delivered to them. What the true proverb says has happened to them. The dog returns to its vomit. And the sow, after washing herself, returns to wallow in the mire. See, during this period of time, everything is heightened. Everything is intensified. Everything is escalated simply because the church is not here. I mean, you think it's bad now. And even though the discourse here doesn't really deal with the rapture of the church, the epistles do. And when the church is gone... Literally, all hell breaks loose. The Spirit takes back His restraining power. And just everything just goes bonkers. There's deception. There's wars. There's conflicts. All kinds of things that just go on. And so we're looking at this time when deception is at its peak. And that's the first mark, the first sign of the beginning of these birth pains, is worldwide deception. And so look at verse 4, because Jesus answered them, and he says there, 
See that no one leads you astray. See that. Or beware. Literally, it means keep your eyes wide open. Don't let anybody lead you astray, he says. Don't be deceived. There are going to be people in that period of time who are looking for answers, just like even now. Think about it. Think, of, think, of, think just of our country. Economic problems. You've got all these issues with different wars. You've got this going on. You've got that going on. I mean, it's just, and the whole world system is that way. So think about when someone comes along and says, hey, I have the solution. They're going to be deceived. Because everybody's looking for answers. The world is going to begin to disintegrate and evil is just going to run wild during that time. Matter of fact, in verse 12, it says there, because lawlessness in verse 20 or chapter 24, Matthew, will be increased. Will be increased. Lawlessness will just abound. I mean, you think it's bad now. It's, 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 this is nothing. And so he says, beware because of deception. Don't let anybody lead you astray. Keep your eyes open. Keep your ears sensitive to what you hear. That's why it's so important when you, when you come under the teaching of the Word of God. You know, don't just take for granted whatever anybody says. You just can't do it. You know, think how blessed you are to have your own personal copy of God's Word. You can go home and you can read it for yourself. You can research it yourself. I mean, especially nowadays. I mean, there's so many resources out there. It's amazing. And that's what we're called to to be. We're called to be Bereans. We're called to study the Word of God so that we can be approved, so that we understand what it says, so that we can be ready. So the world here in this future state, all social relationships are literally disrupted. There's economic chaos. Furious sin is just abounding. And everything just begins to implode. Everything begins to collapse. And the world is looking for someone to help them. The world is looking for that Messiah, that Savior, that Deliverer. And as soon as they start to cry out for, boy, somebody help us, somebody help us, all of a sudden all these false messiahs, false deliverers are going to rise up. And look at what it says in verse 5. It says, for many will come. Many. We're not talking one or two. We're not talking kind of popcorn, false Christ here, popping up here and there. I mean, today we have people that, you know, even in our time, you know, you had David Koresh who proclaimed to be the Messiah. You had other people in history that, you know, proclaim this. But this, that's nothing. They're going to be all over the place then. They're all going to be saying, my name is Christ. I'm the one that's going to deliver you. And they're going to be wanting to deceive many. And so he says, don't be deceived. There's going to come a time in the end when many will rise up and want to deceive you and proclaim themselves to be Christ. 
So the Olivet Discourse, this portion of Scripture, it's also recorded over in Luke and other in Mark as well. But in, in Luke chapter 21, verse 8, it says, And he said, Take heed that you be not deceived, for many shall come in my name, saying, I am the Christ. I am the Christ. I'm the one. I'm the one. I'm the one. They're going to say, It's time for my kingdom. It's time for my rule, my reign. Just give your allegiance to me. And there, there's going to be myriads of them. And the Lord says, Don't go after them. Don't buy the lie. Don't be deceived. But the world is going to be in such sore straits. It's it's going to be in such desperate need of some kind of a leader to step up and meet their needs. They're just going to be primed targets. In verse 23, Matthew 24, it says, Then if anyone says to you, look, here is the Christ, or there he is, don't believe it. (laughs) That's how common it's going to be. For the false Christ and the false prophets will arise and perform. Look at what they're going to be able to do. They're going to be able to perform great signs and wonders to lead them astray. If possible, it says, even the elect. In other words, this is on a whole different level than what we're seeing today. I mean, these are going to be people who literally do signs and wonders. Some kind of magic, some kind of supernatural, demon-inspired works. And they're going to be able to captivate the attention of a world that's so desperate for somebody that can help them. And in this myriad of all these false Christs rising up saying, hey, I'm the Christ, I'm the Christ, I'm the Christ, there's going to be one that basically rises above them all, and that is the Antichrist. And he will be the epitome of all the false Christs. And he will be the ultimate demonized individual, you might say. He's going to be indwelt literally by Satan himself. Daniel calls him the little horn. The king with the fierce face, the willful king. John calls him the beast. Paul calls him the son of perdition, the man of sin. And he's the one who comes as the, kind of the culmination of all these people saying they're the Christ. And he rises above them all and says, no, it's me. And he's so convincing, he's so deceptive, that Daniel 9.27 says, even Israel as a nation makes a covenant with him. And they enter into this covenant with this Antichrist. Because they believe, literally, that he's their deliverer. That's how deceitful he is. And all the nations of the world, the Bible says, fall into his deception. And they come under his power. He deceives many. If you turn over to Daniel chapter 8. Verse 23, it says, And at the latter end of their kingdom, when the, transgressions, when the transgressors have reached their limit, in other words, when everything is just coming to a, a full head, 
says that the, at the latter time, when they reach your limit, a king of bold face, one who understands riddles, shall arise. Dark sentences. What's that mean? It means he has some kind of communion with demons, the devils of hell. He's a medium. Verse 24, his power shall be great, but not by his own power. See, it's not his power, it's the power of hell that's behind him. And it says, he shall cause fearful destruction and shall succeed in what he does and destroy mighty men and the people who are the saints. He's an awesome conqueror. Verse 25, by his cunning, he shall, deceit, he shall make deceit prosper under his hand. He's a deceiver. And in his own mind, he shall become great. He's very effective at what he does. And it says, without warning, he shall destroy many. See, he uses peace as a tool to bring them in. What's the one thing in the world today? If you could have one thing in the world, what would you want? Peace. We want peace. What's the focus in the Middle East? Peace. Israel, just give them whatever they want. Just so we can have peace. Peace, peace, peace. Everybody wants peace. He's going to use that as a kind of a hook to draw everybody in. And he uses negotiation to consume the world and bring them under his power. It goes on and it says, And he shall even rise up against the prince of princes, and he shall be broken but by no human hand. He's not going to win in the end. He's also described over in Revelation chapter 6 as this tribulation of seven years unfolds, one thing begins to happen after the other. And the beginning of these birth pains of Revelation 6 is the same as the birth pains here we see right here in Matthew 24. Matthew 24 says, first of all, you've got to be careful because there's going to be deceivers. There's going to be those who want to lead you astray. Revelation 6 says, as the tribulation begins, there will come one, a, a rider on a white horse conquering, and he has a bow but no arrows. What does that mean? He intimidates, but he never shoots. He conquers with peace. He's not the true Christ. He's a false Christ. And at the beginning of the tribulation in Revelation 6, it says this false peace, this false rider on this white horse who's imitating the true Christ of Revelation 19, Jesus Christ, people just buy right into it. He comes in power. He does these awesome supernatural things. He brings power to himself through peace. And he stands up against the Prince of Peace. He stands against Christ. In Daniel chapter 11, verse 36, it says that he's called the king who does according to his own will. Well, whenever you do anything according to your own will, whose will are you violating? God's. 
It says, the king will do as he pleases. He will exalt and magnify himself above every god and will say unheard of things against the god of gods. And he will be successful until the time of wrath is completed. For what has been determined must take place. See, in all these things, beloved, we have this wonderful acknowledgement of the sovereignty of God. Even though you look at the world, it looks like everything, the wheels are falling off. But you know what? God is still in control. I mean, maybe you're here today and you're looking at your own life and you're saying, yeah, you don't understand what's going on in my life. I may not, but you know what? God does. And I want you to know that God is sovereign over these things. Verse 37, he says, He will show no regard in Daniel 11, show no regard for the gods of the ancestors, of his ancestors, or for the one desired by woman, nor will he regard any god, but will exalt himself above them all. Instead of them, he will honor a god of fortresses, a god unknown to his ancestors. He will honor with gold and silver, with precious stones and costly gifts. Verse 39, he will attack the mightiest fortresses with the help of the foreign god, of a foreign god. And will greatly honor those who acknowledge him. He will make them rulers over many people and distribute the land at a price. See, he raises up new gods. He's an idolatrous antichrist. And his deception is incredible. Revelation 13, John sees him not as a fierce face, not even as a willful king, but sees him as a beast who rises up out of the nations, devastating. Revelation 13.4 says, Who is like the beast? Who can fight against it? And the beast was given a mouth uttering haughty and blasphemous words, and it was allowed to exercise authority for 42 months. It's three and a half years. He's going to go for it for three and a half years. It starts with him, and it goes for 42 months. First half of the tribulation, oh, everybody's looking for peace, and boy, they put this guy in charge, and he does all this stuff, signs a treaty with Israel, right snap dab in the middle of the seven-year period. And you can work all this out with the Jewish timeline, the Jewish calendar, there's 30 days in a month and so forth. It works out exactly. There's no fudging numbers here at all. He declares himself to be God right in the middle of that seven-year period. In the second half of the 70th week of Daniel, as it's referred to in Daniel 9. You say, is all this really going to happen? Yeah. It really is. He's going to go into the temple and basically proclaim himself to be God. I mean, can you imagine such deceitfulness? The world literally believes this guy is the Messiah. This guy is the Savior, which they've long awaited for. And so Jesus says here, you know what? Keep your eyes open. 
Don't be deceived. Because there's going to come these false Christs. That's the first start of things. And it's going, to rece- it's going to deceive many, it says. The whole world's going to be deceived by him. Don't let it happen to you. That's what he's, that's what he's sharing. What a warning. And who is behind all this deception? Revelation 12.9 says, The dragon, the old serpent, the devil, and Satan who deceives the whole world. That's who's behind any kind of deception. So we want to ask ourselves this morning, I mean, this is at a time in the future. But even today, even today in real time as we look at our society and we look at how things are coming together and how people are so easily deceived, I pray that your hearts will be open to the truth of God. Remember what I said a couple weeks ago. When Jesus says something, when he says something is going to happen, it's going to happen. This isn't a joke. This isn't a time of you know, fanciful thinking and, oh, well, well maybe I'll, be, I'll deal about it then. No, because the Bible says no man knows the hour. Christ could come right now. We could be snatched out of here, those of us who are followers of Christ. And at that point in time, beloved, I mean, it's it's literally too late. Too late. I pray that you will open your hearts to the message of Christ. What is the message of Christ? The message of Christ is, hey, you know what? I know you've sinned. I know you've done wrong things. I know you, 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 your heart is black, the Bible says. But that's why I came. That's why I came and I lived on this earth for 33 years. That's why I went to a cross called Calvary, and I died in your place. I paid the price for your sin because I'm the only way, the only payment that could be paid. One thing about Christ that separates him from all the other sacrifices of the Old Testament, he was a perfect sacrifice. Perfect in every way. Didn't know sin. So when he paid that price for your sin, And my sin. He invites you and he says, come on to me. All ye who are heavy, burdened, and kind of weighed down with all the cares of this world, come on to me. Let me carry it for you. I'll carry that weight. I'll pay that penalty of sin for you. It's already done. You just have to reach out, grab a hold of it, receive it, acknowledge it. Give your life over to him. He's the one who has the truth, beloved. There's no other. 
The Bible clearly says there's only one way to heaven. I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father but through me. That's the words of Christ. He wouldn't lie to you. He's telling you the truth. I pray that your hearts will be open to him and his gift of salvation for you. Father, we thank you this morning for your word. Lord, I know that... um, There'll come a time when this time of deception happens and Lord, many will be caught up in it. Father, I pray today that as we bring it back to right now, how do we apply this? Two words, we just need to be ready. We need to be ready for the return of Christ. The Bible clearly says to do that you have to come to Him. You have to express a need. Just as that future time, those people will be desperate for a Savior because the pain will be so great. That applies today. When you come to Christ, you come out of desperation. When you come to Christ, you come to Him because there's nowhere else to go. When you come to Christ, you come to Him because you know that He's the only one that has paid for your sin. And as great as your sin is and my sin is, He can pay the payment in full. He can wash us white as snow, the Bible says. We need to reach out. We need to trust Him. It's by faith. Grace that we're saved. Not of works, lest any man should boast. This isn't about coming to church. It isn't about reading your Bible. It isn't about praying. All those things are good things. Don't get me wrong. But the world is filled with religious people that do those things on a daily basis. And they're on the wide path to destruction and hell. It's only those who commit themselves to Christ, those who trust in His salvation and His forgiveness are saved. And we look forward to that blessed hope, that time when Christ will return for His church. And we'll be caught up with Him. Father, we pray that if there's any here this morning who's yet to put their faith or trust in you. Lord, I ask that you would move them to cry out to you, just even in the quietness of their own heart. Just acknowledge their sin. Be merciful to me, a sinner. Help me to believe in this message of salvation that this man speaks of. For us believers, I pray that we'd be diligent when we look at this world and we look at how lost and dying it is that we would be willing to go out and to share the good news of the gospel. There's many, many who have yet to hear the message of Christ. And he left us here with that message to take it to a lost and dying world so that they could be transformed, they could be forgiven, they could be saved from their sin, they could be born again. 
Father, we pray that we would be able to prepare our hearts for our communion time.